Okay, we are continuing our study today in our Confession of Faith, chapter 22, on religious worship and the Sabbath day. And we are on uh, paragraph 2, having completed paragraph 1, the regulative principle of worship. We saw that God alone has the right to regulate His own worship, and those regulations for His worship are laid down in His Word, to which nothing is to be added by way of any human imagination or device. We are to worship God uh, in all of the ways he has prescribed, but in only the ways that he has prescribed. Now, in paragraph two, we begin uh, last time to deal with the proper object of worship. And this paragraph addresses the question, who is to be worshipped and how is that worship to be offered? And so it says, religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures, and, since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but Christ alone. Now, last time we considered together that worship belongs to the Trinity alone. We saw in many religions, there are multiple objects of worship, uh, and even among professing Christians' religions, uh, for example, Roman Catholicism, there is the worship of images and statues and crucifixes and relics and saints and Mary and a whole bunch of other things as well. And of course, this idolatry is all forbidden by the second commandment. And so we see that I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then, of course, we, we shall not make unto us any graven images. We shall not bow down ourselves to them, nor should we worship them. And so Jesus, you recall, when he was being tempted in the wilderness to fall down and worship Satan, said to Satan, um, uh, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God only, and... Uh, you shall not worship anything or anyone else. And of course, when John fell down to worship the angel in Revelation 22, the angel said, see thou do it not, uh, worship God alone. So we saw that this one God was manifest in three persons. We spent a great deal of time on that whole subject in uh, chapter uh, two or three, I believe it was, on the subject of the Trinity. When we, um, yeah, chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity, when we looked at that uh, a couple of years ago, and we saw that any one of these persons is proper to worship. We may worship the Father, we may worship the Son, or we may worship the Holy Spirit individually, or we may worship God collectively um, in all three persons uh, in, in one. We saw specifically that the worship of angels is forbidden, Colossians 2.18 and uh, Revelation 19 and verse 10, the angels themselves forbid worship. And then we saw that the worship of, uh, of saints is forbidden when Peter came to Cornelius' house and Cornelius fell down to worship Peter. Peter said, stand up, I also am a man, worship God. So here, the first pope of the church forbade people to worship him. <laughs> first pope. I, I speak that facetiously, of course. Um, and so 
invocations or prayers to saints implies that they have the attributes of God and uh, that they are therefore suitable objects of worship. And of course, um, Romans 1.25 condemns this when it says they worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. So we saw then last time that worship is to be given to the Trinity alone and it is not to be given to saints or to any other creatures. Now that brings us today to uh, the second half of this paragraph in our new material. And that is, is that not only is worship to be given to the Trinity alone, but worship is to be offered through the mediation of Christ. Worship is to be offered through the mediation of Christ. It says, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but Christ alone. Now, originally before the fall, Adam was able to approach God directly in his own person. He did not have to go to God through another. However, since the fall, um, God may not be directly approached by any human being. Being sinful and fallen, we are only able to approach him through a mediator, through our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God um, provided a, a visual image of that. Um, in the Old Testament tabernacle, we see that only the high priest could go in to the Holy of Holies and represent the people to God. The people could not go in, and if they went in, they would die. And so what was being said by that imagery is that you don't approach God directly yourself. You have to go through the high priest, who, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ, and he alone brings our cause and our persons to God. Now, Catholics teach that there are a number of mediators, and, and partly this paragraph is written as a polemic against their practices of having multiple mediators. And of course, they attempt to come to God through angels, through saints, and through Mary as... Um, they're mediators, and uh, they are somehow uh, seen as those that we can appeal to, who have more sympathy for us, and who will be able to go and plead with Jesus or with God to do things for us that they would not do for us without the intercession and mediation of the saints. Now, there is in the Bible one place where there was a prayer offered to a departed saint. Does anyone know where that prayer is located? Caleb? Uh, the rich man prayed to Abraham. That's correct. Okay. In Luke chapter 16 and in verse 24, we have the rich man in hell praying to a departed saint. Father Abraham. <laughs> Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and touch my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. The only prayer that was offered to a departed saint is a prayer out of hell. And prayers to departed saints are hellish prayers. And Father Abraham did not grant the request, you recall. And he was, of course, not able to grant the request. And he was also not willing to grant the request. And so 
the only biblical record of a prayer ever being offered to a saint is that record. Other than that, we are told to pray to God alone. Did you have a comment, Dave? Well, and you have another instance kind of like that where you have a king, Saul, who appeals to Samuel. Now, it's a different scenario, you know, through a medium, but, you know, he's seeking the counsel of a departed saint through a, you know, an evil environment, a medium, of course. And he doesn't get his answer either. Yeah. Yeah. Was he praying or was he asking for advice? No, it's a different scenario. Yeah. Right. He was attempting to interact with the departed saint. And once again, in a context of, of Satanism. Right. And, and, and that's the thing. Any, any effort to contact departed saints or appeal to departed saints is always associated with, with hell or with Satan or, or something like that, not with anything biblical. No. <laughs> No, they don't. Did you have a comment, Scott? Yeah, the, uh, when the disciples asked Jesus for direction on, on how to pray, and, and where we get our Lord's Prayer from, he didn't, he didn't pray Father Abraham or, or, or any other saints. You know, it was, it was the Heavenly Father. Right, our Father, which art in heaven. So he taught his disciples to go directly to the Father through uh, the person of the Son. Exactly. He says, when you pray, ask in my name. All right. <clears throat> now, what I want to do is look at a number of passages that indicate the, the importance and the necessity and the centrality of coming to God through the mediation of Christ. So let's just go through our Bibles and look at a number of passages. The first one is 1 Timothy 2.5. First Timothy two and verse five. Beginning at verse three, it says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved, that is, all sorts of men. In the context he's talking about kings and all that are in authority, even those Roman magistrates, he'll even have those types of men to be saved. And to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For Here's our verse. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. That is a ransom for all sorts of men. Verse 7, wherein I am ordained a preacher and apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So whether they're kings and magistrates or whether they're Gentiles, God will have all types of men to be saved, and Jesus gave himself a ransom for all types and classes and categories of men. But the point is, in verse 5, is that there is one mediator between God and men, just one, which rules out angels and saints and Mary and whoever else. There's not two or three or four or five. And I should have brought my Roman Catholic Bible with its Roman Catholic dictionary and read you the article where it talks about Mary as mediatrix. Um, and it also talks about the efficacy of, of the saints and, and as, as objects of, of intercession. 
And so there's one mediator, and then that mediator is identified as the man, Christ Jesus. Now, uh, the reason why his, his humanity is emphasized is so that we can have confidence in this mediator that he understands us and that he can relate to us. And uh, so, uh, anyway, um, this passage is, is probably the clearest and the most powerful that speaks to not only who the mediator is, but the fact that no one else can possibly be mediator. Second passage you want to look at is John 14 and verse 6. In John 14 and verse 6, <clears throat> a very famous passage, Jesus is speaking here to Philip, or, or pardon me, to Thomas, I guess it is. Yes, verse 5, Thomas. And uh, he says uh, that he's going to prepare a place for us in heaven. If he, if, if he goes, he will come again and receive us to himself, that where he is, there we may be also. And then in verse 4 he says, And whither you go, whither I go you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So once again, here he declares the exclus exclusivity. Did I say that right? Exclusivity. Say that for me. Exclusivity. Yeah, there it is. Of, uh, of his... Uh, mediatorship uh, in that you can't come to the Father except through Him. And if you don't go through Him, you don't get to the Father. That's the point. And um, that there is no other one to go through and that uh, He is essential in order to get to the Father. Third passage we want to look at is Ephesians 2 and verse 18. This passage is talking about the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile into one body. And he talks about Christ uh, back up in verse 13, Ephesians 2.13. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were afar off, that is, he's speaking of the Gentiles there, they were far off, they were without uh, the covenants of promise, without hope, without God, have been made near by the blood of Christ, for he, Christ, is our peace. Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, between Jew and Gentile, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that is the old covenant, which said that Jews and Gentiles can't mix and that Gentiles are defiling, etc. That's been abolished. For to make in himself of two, Jew and Gentile, one new man, that is one new covenant community, one new body, so making peace. So Jew and Gentile have now been brought together into a single uh, body of Christ. Okay? Into a single covenant community. And, verse 16, that he might, that is, uh, Jesus, still the antecedent of the word he here, that he, Jesus, might reconcile both, both Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So by the cross, he slew the enmity between Jew and Gentile. By the cross, he slew the enmity between God and his people. Verse 17, and, and came, speaking of Jesus still, came and preached peace to you that were afar off 
and to them that were nigh, for through him. So we still have the same personal pronoun referring back to the same antecedent, okay, Christ. And through Christ, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. So through Christ, we have access to the Father. And of course, that access now is a spiritual access. It is aided and abetted and assisted by the Holy Spirit as he uh, works in us and through us, uh, both in, in regenerating us and sanctifying us and in enabling us to pray. So once again, how do we have access uh, to God, the Father? Answer, through Christ. So if Jew's going to come to God, he's got to come through Christ. If Gentile's going to come to God, he's got to come through Christ. And that's the only way we have access. There is no other access but through Christ. Okay, now let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. In Colossians 3.17, it says, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him or through Him. And so once again, we don't do anything in word or deed in terms of service to the Father or praise to the Father or thanks to the Father without doing it through the person of Jesus Christ. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Now he uses here the image of the Old Testament temple to describe the New Testament church. And you remember the Old Testament temple was made up of dead stones and it had within it a priest of the tribe of Levi and that priest offered animal sacrifices, physical material sacrifices, right? So now he talks about the spirituality of the temple, the priesthood and the sacrifice of the new covenant and how the whole thing has shifted from material to spiritual. He says, verse 5 of 1 Peter 2, You also as living stones, that each, each person is a living stone, are built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Each person is a priest to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And these spiritual sacrifices are things like praise and worship and uh, prayer and singing and those kinds of things. These are all spiritual sacrifices. We don't offer up animals now. We now offer up the sacrifices of our hearts. Now notice that they're acceptable to God by or through Jesus Christ. So not only are our prayers and our persons mediated to God through Christ, but also our worship is mediated through Christ to God. And so 
Um, when you come and worship, uh, you can't worship God in your own person. You have to worship God through the mediation of Jesus Christ. They're acceptable only by Christ. And if you offer them in any other consciousness than through a mediator, and that mediator being Jesus Christ, then those spiritual sacrifices are not acceptable. So all the worship in all the world that's offered to God that is not offered in the name of Christ and with a conscious recognition that it's only through Christ that I can come to God is vain worship. And it's actually an offense to God that people would dare to approach him in their own person and not through the person that he has ordained uh, to approach him. And then the final passage, 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. <clears throat> First Peter 3 and verse 18, it says, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, or the just in the place of the unjust, or the just as the substitute for the unjust, and why did he suffer in our place? That he might bring us to God. And so Jesus is the one, once again, who brings us to God. We don't come to God in our own persons. And that reminds me of a passage in Jude. Just occurred to me. Chapter 1 in, in verse 24. Speaking of Jesus Christ again, in Jude 1 and verse 24, now unto him, speaking of Jesus, that's the antecedent of him if you go back up in the context, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So we have to be presented before the throne of God by Christ in order to be accepted by God the Father. And so Jesus on that day will either own us to the Father as being one of his and present us faultless before the Father's throne. Or he will disown us and repudiate us and say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so this is the reason why Jesus is going to be the one who's going to pass the judgment. And he is going to make the declaration so that we come on the basis of his presentation or we do not come at all. So these are a number of passages that make it abundantly clear, as our confession says, that we do not come to God without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. All right, are there any questions or observations, Roy? Maybe it's a two-part question, depending on how you answer the first part. So... That's on an individual basis and on a church basis as we gather at church for prayers? Yes, that's correct. When you pray individually, for example, you would pray in Jesus' name. And when we pray collectively, we pray 
in Jesus' name. Um, so when you go to get saved, okay, you get saved through Jesus Christ, and you come to God through Christ. And when we as a church approach God in worship, we approach him in the name of Jesus. You will recall in Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. And so as, as, a, as a corporate body, we are gathered in the name of Jesus. And part of what that means is that we are gathered under his authority and by means of his representation to enter into the worship and service of God as a body of people. And the second part would be, uh, always comes to mind is the, the Pepsi-Cola church we went to down the coast um, was in a church like that where it, we've talked several times about um, properly worshiping God the way he, he tells us to and then whenever you, you get to a, a church where they don't What happens there? I mean, you see all kinds of craziness going on, and then, you know, they say a prayer, and they say in Jesus' name at the end. I mean, how much is... Yeah, good. I'm confused on that. Sure, okay. Coming to God through the mediation of Christ <clears throat> involves much more than just tacking the phrase... In Jesus' name, amen, on the end of your prayer. <clears throat> For example, if I went into a store and I stole a candy bar out of the store and I said, you know, Lord, I'm stealing this candy bar in Jesus' name, would, would God validate that and say, oh, well, he did it in Jesus' name, so uh, of course not, okay? And so the invocation of Jesus' name is not some magic formula that makes whatever you do okay in worship. Uh, the invocation in Jesus' name is, is, is a declaration and a plea. It's a declaration that we're doing this uh, in the name of Jesus, that is, according to his instruction, okay? And it's a plea that it would be received and washed by the blood of Jesus because we know even our best efforts at obedience are imperfect. And so um, the phrase in Jesus' name is, is not a magic formula that makes whatever you offer to God and worship acceptable. It's a declaration that you are self-consciously seeking to follow him in his word. And it's a plea that his blood would, would, would cleanse and make acceptable our imperfect service um, uh, to God. You find, you find people that I think are honest and sincere, but <clears throat> the ignorance is overwhelming. Yeah. Does that just mean Christ has to clean up a whole lot more? Um, or maybe they're truly not to that point of salvation. Yeah, see, I, I think it would depend upon um, what the disposition of the heart was. Now, I believe that people who are genuinely saved and sincere and yet ignorant, 
and therefore don't do things right, their worship is still acceptable. Jesus cleanses the part that's sinful and the part that's legitimate is accepted by God. However, when you have someone who's not saved and who is worshiping really themselves because the worship is for them and about them, it doesn't matter if they invoke Jesus' name or not, none of that is acceptable. Right. So, you know, the best worship offered by the best saint under the best circumstances still has sin attached to it and has to be cleansed. Of course, the goal is to have as little sin and as much obedience as possible in all of our acts. Um, but even if there's 90% sin and, and 10% good, I believe that 10% is accepted by God um, through uh, the mediation of Christ. And, and, and what we're talking about here is, is a whole doctrine called evangelical obedience, in which obedience done under the gospel, though perfect, is still acceptable to God. I preached a whole message on that in Titus chapter 3 um, when we went through that book and explained how imperfect service is still acceptable to God if it comes out of a converted heart and if it's done with, with sincerity, obeying God as best we know how. And I must confess that, you know, two, three, four years after I was saved, I didn't know how to worship God nearly as well as I do 33 years down the road. So, um, you know, when, when you talked about the Pepsi-Cola church, um, you know, the real question you have to ask is, is this even a genuine church? And are these people genuinely saved? And are these people genuinely sincere? Um, or is this, in fact, you know, a, a, a group of largely unsaved person who think they're saved and a group of people who are really worshiping because it does something for them and um, the God that they worship is really not the God of the Bible. And as bad as the doctrine is in a lot of so-called so -called Christian churches, I think that very frequently is the case. God alone is the ultimate judge as to whether that is the case or not, but I think objectively we have to look and say, you know, what is the attitude, what is the focus, you know, what is the practice, what is the, the disposition here? And, um, you know, we have to try to exercise the judgment of charity and hope for the best. But at the same time, with reference to our own families and worships, we want to align ourselves with a situation that, as best we understand it, is, is the most in obedience to the will of Christ and offends him the least with imperfections attached to it. Max? I was just gonna say in addition to what Joy was saying, there could be in the, the person who is doing the praying may very well not be saved or whatever, but there may be a person in the congregation who generally is, and of course there are many Yeah, and, and, and sometimes you don't know. Now, sometimes you do know. I mean, at times I'm with people, family members, who I know are not saved, and they lead in prayer, for example, at the dinner table. I will not enter into their prayer. I pray my own prayer privately because their prayer is an abomination to God. 
Um, you know, the, the Bible says um, the, the prayer of, of the wicked is an abomination to God, but the prayer of the upright is his delight, right? And so I'm not going to enter into the prayer of some unsaved person and make that my prayer because I know that's not acceptable to God. It's not being done in the name of Jesus. And it doesn't get any higher than the ceiling. So I just silently pray my own prayer to, my, to, to, to God myself and, and pray that in Jesus' name. Dave, you had a comment? Um, I don't see it so much anymore, but there's probably from the Catholic background a tendency to have people become mediators for you. That is, oh, since you're clergy, would you pray for me? Yes, I get that quite a bit. And the holy man is here. He's here to pray. This guy has the key to heaven, and that is something that, you know, we are commanded to pray for one another. Sure. Things like that. But sometimes there's a tendency for people to, oh, you're, man, you hold the Bible, and you, you pray with your family. Would you pray for me? Well, how do you answer that? Yes, yeah. of course, I'll pray for you, but... Isn't it a door for us to say, you know, let me tell you about sure. the one we need? Sure, sure. Yeah. And while the simplest prayer of the simplest person is offered in sincerity and through Christ is, is heard by God, um, you know, I think that, you know, the more mature we are, the more effectively and biblically and fully we're able to pray. Um, <clears throat> but nevertheless, um, you know, the idea that one person's prayer is going to be more efficacious because they're more eloquent um, is simply not the case, simply not true. Scott? Yeah, the, in the scenario where, where the, an individual is unlearned and ignorant and 10% and of his prayer and worship is right and 90% of it's not, would you say that the 90% is just not an offense to God, or is it actually made right by being washed with Jesus? I think I think that it, it's sin. Uh, prayer that's not offered in accordance with Scripture is sin, and I think it's forgiven, and I think it's in that sense cleansed. Uh, just like as as I go through my life, you know, most of the time my speech is pretty good, but occasionally I'll, I'll, I'll engage in corrupt communication. Well, what, is, what does Jesus do with that corrupt communication? Does he purify it and make it good too? No, he just wipes it off the slate. And uh, it's, uh, it's under the blood, as, as we say. <clears throat> and I think it's the same way with, with uh, corrupt worship. I think it's just put under the blood. Because corrupt worship is no less sin than corrupt speech. Or corrupt behavior in any other area. All right, well, let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father, we thank you that we have a mediator in the person of our Lord Jesus. And Lord, we do look to him alone for the avenue by which we would come into your presence and approach you and enter into heaven Thank you, Father, that Jesus has made a way. And Lord, we desire to come by means of that way to you. Lord, we pray today that our worship would be acceptable to you through Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, he would be pleased to bring to you 
all that is good in our worship and he would be pleased to cleanse and forgive all of that which is defective. Father, thank you that we have such a wonderful high priest who can bring us to God. Thank you that he has brought us and it is in his merit that we remain in your presence and as your children. In Jesus' name, amen.